Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. 
Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. Well, in Galatians 5.22, the, the fruit of the Spirit is listed. Uh, and these are the marks, these fruit of the Spirit are the marks of a supernaturally changed heart. And the fruit of the Spirit, as you know, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now here in Romans 12, Paul is emphasizing the theme of one of the fruits of the Spirit, the theme of patience. Uh, the King James Version translates it as long-suffering. Indeed, the Greek word for patience is makrothemia, and it literally means to suffer for a long time. Long suffering. <laughs> what this is saying, uh, and this is the biblical idea of patience, is this, we'll put this on the overhead. Uh, patience is that trait by which you're able to bear up under difficulty without giving up or giving in to bitterness. Patience is bearing up under difficult circumstances without giving up or giving in to bitterness. And therefore, there's two kinds of patience. Put this in the overhead as well. Two kinds of patience. There's patience under difficult circumstances where you have peace even in the midst of suffering. Uh, and number two, there's patience and grace before difficult people and difficult relationships whereby you're able to love and forgive and not grow bitter. Patience with people. And that's what this text here in Romans 12, the second half of Romans 12, is all about. This passage talks about how to be patient, patient and gracious with people who are opposing you. And this text is going to give us three things. It's going to give us, number one, the principle of patience. Number two, ideas of how to practice patience. Patience and grace before difficult people. And three, the power to do this. So we're going to have the principle uh, and the practices and the power for patience. How is that for alliteration? <laughs> so first, the principle. And this whole spectrum of people we're talking about here, uh, we'll put this in the overhead as well. At one end of the spectrum are people who just don't like you. Uh, they don't necessarily wrong you or hurt you, but they just don't like you. They don't, walk, they don't work with you, they kind of work against you. Maybe someone at your school. Someone at work. These are people who won't work with you or won't help you. And then in the middle of the spectrum, you've got people who've wronged you, uh, who hurt you. They've done an injustice to you. Uh, they've lied to you. Uh, they've cheated on you. And then at the far end of the spectrum are the actual persecutors. Persecutors are, are people who haven't just wronged you, they had it in for you. They want to lower your quality of life. Uh, they want to see you harmed. So all along the spectrum, people who just work against you, or who are irritating to you and don't like you, all the way to people who, who actively persecute you, what is your response supposed to be? Now I'll tell you what your response is. The default mode of the human heart, and it's involuntary, when people wrong you, you retaliate. When people hurt you, you retaliate. You don't just sit, you, and you don't even sit and say, I think I'll retaliate. You just do it, it just happens. If you want to know what the human heart looks like, there's a great quote from Sigmund Freud, for all you psychologists out there. Freud said, one must forgive one's enemies, preferably after they've been hanged. <laughs> Which is another way of saying, of course I'll forgive them once I've killed them. <laughs> and that's the way the human heart works. But it's not the principle laid down here in the scriptures. Well, what is the principle? It's in verses 17 and 21, and it's startling, and it's amazing. And by the way, at this point, Yeshua faith disagrees with every other religion and every other ethical system. In fact, there is no culture or society that believes this. Yeshua faith is utterly unique here. Uh, and whenever Messianic faith shows up in a society or a culture and begins to preach this, everybody thinks they're crazy. Here's what the principle is. Look at Romans 12, 17. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. And verse 21. Don't be overcome by evil, but rather overcome evil with good. Now, this word overcome 
is actually a military word. It means to overpower or to defeat. Uh, and this is what it's saying. And we'll do this on overhead as well. If when someone harms you, when somebody hurts you, and you just hurt them back, if when someone insults you and reviles you, you revile them back, when they hurt you and you hurt them back, you've been defeated by evil. You've lost. Evil wins. You've been overpowered by it. You have become part of the problem. You become evil yourself. Maybe that person who wronged you or hurt you, he wasn't even trying to hurt you in this way. But the point is, you've just given the perpetrator exactly what he or she wanted. If you repay evil with evil, you've been overcome by the evil. And then the overhead as well. So the next one, uh, the only way to defeat the evil, this is the overhead as well, the only way to defeat the evil, therefore, is to overcome evil with good. And what does that mean? If somebody wrongs you, you've got to respond with forgiveness and graciousness and willing their good. And it puts in the overhead as well. If you don't respond with forgiveness, with, with kind and gracious answers, uh, by willing their good, not willing their harm, but willing their good, if you don't, one, number one, forgive them, number two, do kind and gracious responses, and number three, to will their good, if you don't do those three things, you've been overcome by evil. You've been defeated. You're part of the problem. You become evil yourself. To repay evil for evil means, I want to see them hurt. I want them to suffer. Like I suffer. I want to bring them down. And there's two ways to repay evil for evil. We'll put this in the overhead as well. Uh, one way is to actually retaliate. Uh, to go out there and bring about the painful situation yourself. The other way, the more common way, is to sit and not do anything, but to root in your heart against them. To hope for, to wish for bad things, bad situations, bad conditions to happen to them. And whenever you see them unhappy, you go, Yes! <laughs> Paying evil for evil. You're still willing the evil. You're wishing for it. You're either doing the retaliation or you're wishing you could retaliate. And that's repaying evil with evil. And if you do that, you can overcome by the evil. You've been defeated. Also, in three different ways you've been defeated. Look this on the overhead as well. Number one, if you stay angry, if you stay in this retaliation mode and stay bitter towards them, it distorts and poisons all of your relationships. People who stay angry at somebody feel, feel like as if they're accomplishing something. But actually, all they're doing is ruining themselves. So, for example, let's say you're a man and a woman has hurt you, and you stay angry with her, that's going to distort and affect all your other relationships with women. Uh, same thing if you're a woman and a man has hurt you. If you stay bitter and resentful, it'll poison and distort all your other relationships with men. Same thing with someone from another race, or, or social class, or, or nationality, or, or religion, or people in general. People wrong you, you hate them, you stop trusting people in general. It poisons your relationships. It distorts you. Don't think that it won't. Secondly, it doesn't just harm your, your relationships. Uh, it, it actually, it, it harms you. Because the worst thing that can happen to you is to be pushed away from what the gospel wants for, for you. Because the gospel, the scriptures, understand that the core problem of the world is twofold, but on the overhead as well, is, is self-centeredness and self-righteousness. Self-righteousness self says, I'm better than other people. Self-centeredness says, I'm more important than anybody else, than other people. It's me first. It's me. Self-righteousness says, I'm better than these people and those people. Where do you think war comes from? Where do you think racism comes from? Where do you think all of our problems come from? 
This is where it comes from. And the whole point of the gospel is to destroy your self-righteousness and your self-centeredness. Destroy this idea that you're better and you're more important than other people. Because the gospel tells you you are just a sinner saved by God's grace. But if you stay angry with someone, you're taking the self-righteousness of your heart and you're amping it up. Because when you get angry at someone, you nurse the idea that you've been so hurt. You're this noble person who's been so unjustly hurt. What it's doing is turning that, it's turning yourself into a person who, who's self-centered and self-pitying uh, and self-absorbed. Uh, and is therefore, you become someone capable of unbelievable cruelty. Do you see this? Evil is winning. Now here's an analogy. Think about people who've had their thyroid removed. They had to take thyroid pills for the rest of their life uh, to replace the missing hormones. But if you take calcium with it, or you drink calcium fortified orange juice or, or milk with it, the calcium actually destroys the ability of your body to absorb the thyroid. In the same way, if you've taken your gospel pill, which is supposed to take away your, your self-righteousness and your self-centeredness, but you maintain a grudge against somebody, you're only going to defeat the power of the gospel pill in your life. Uh, it'll block the power of the gospel in your life to overcome your self-centeredness and your self-righteousness. Uh, and it stunts your ability to walk in the fruits of the Spirit. And that only this retaliation and bitterness hurt your relationships. Number one, it hurts your hearts. Number two, but number three, uh, overhead as well. Number three, it also affects the perpetrator. Because if a person wrongs you and you pay them back, tit for tat, all you're doing is reinforcing them in their wrongness. You're reinforcing their bad behavior. If someone harms you and you just pound them back, do they say, oh, I've seen the error of my ways? <laughs> no. They say, I was right to do it. You really are a jerk. <laughs> You're reinforcing them in their sin. So all you're doing is creating and perpetuating this deadly cycle of, of insult and insult back. Harming and harming back. And all you're doing, and you alienate their friends as well, and so evil is winning. You've got to break the cycle. If you don't forgive, if you don't respond with graciousness and mercy and kindness, if you don't respond by willing their good, the good of that person, then evil wins. And the perpetrator wins. But not in the way you thought, because you become part of the problem. Now, my all-time favorite uh, book, The Lord of the Rings, as you may know, it's this epic story uh, about this ring, whereby whoever rules, whoever wears this ring can rule the world. And this, this ring of power was made by an evil lord. But if you try to use this ring against the evil lord, it will corrupt you. And you will become an evil lord yourself. So the only way to kill the evil lord is not with power, but with weakness and sacrifice. It's a profoundly biblical theme. And in the same way, when Messiah came, he didn't come to bring judgment. He came to bear judgment. Uh, he is our model for patience in the face of injustice. So that's number one. That's the principle of patience. And put this on the overhead, please. Number two is, is the, the practice of patience. Uh, there's a number of very practical ways for you to go about this. If somebody wrongs you, what are you supposed to do? How do you overcome evil with good? I'm going to give you five practical ideas from our text. So number one is bless. To bless them. Uh, look at Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. The word bless in this context includes meaning to, to pray for. You, you pray for God's blessing for this person. Indeed, Yeshua himself says in Matthew 5, uh, 43, you've heard that it was said to, to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. Remember now, she was talking about the extreme end of the spectrum of, 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 of how people being mistreated. Someone who's actively and intentionally persecuting you. So think what Yeshua was saying. He's saying, pray for those who persecute you. Remember what we said about this spectrum. There's people who don't like you, people who wrong you, and people who persecute you. These are the, these are the worst. They're the worst. These are the persecutors. Yeshua says, Pray for them. Paul says, bless them. And, and this is so practical. You know why? Because you really can't hate someone who you're praying for. You can't pray for them sincerely and hate them at the same time. Even if you start out in the beginning, your prayer is only, Lord, open the eyes of that idiot. <laughs> at least you've made a start. <laughs> you're kind of praying for them to, to some extent. And they've got to will, you've got to will their good. Oh, bless them, Paul says in verse 14. And, and praying for them, and over time, this leads you to blessing them. Right? Because you're praying for their good. So number two, in addition to praying and blessing, number two, you've got to forgive. Look at Romans 12, 17. Don't repay evil against, uh, I'm sorry, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Don't take revenge, my friends. But leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will pay, says the Lord. Don't take revenge, either outside in your life or inside in your heart. A lot of people like to say, I've forgiven them, but I'll never forget what they did to me. And what that often really means is, I'm not trying to harm them, and I'm not trying to take revenge against them out there in the world, but I'm still taking revenge against them inside of my mind. And when you do that, when you internally nurse grudges like that, you're actually practicing a form of voodoo. It's kind of psychological voodoo. Because you're figuratively putting pins in a little doll in your heart, hoping that somehow that will hurt them. You're sitting there, either openly or secretly, rooting against them. And this will poison you. It will destroy you from within. It's like a low dose of radiation poisoning that slowly eats away at your soul. So what do you do? How do you forgive? This on the overhead as well. Forgiveness is granted before it's felt. A lot of people I hear tell me, I can't forgive them because I'm so angry at them. No, they've got it backwards, just the opposite. You're angry at them because you won't forgive them. You've got to start by refraining from sticking those pins in them. You refrain, you play with anger tapes about them over and over again in your mind. You refrain from reliving the memories of what they did to you, remembering it over and over again. You refrain from retaliating against them, both outside and inside. You refrain from all your revenge fantasies. You refrain from thinking what you would like to see happen to them. When your mind starts going there, you turn it away uh, to more godly thoughts. You take every thought captive to Messiah Yeshua. So you've got to, so to put this on the overhead as well, you've got to grant forgiveness as an act of your will before you will feel it as an act of your emotions. So you grant it before you feel it. So number one, you bless them and pray for them. Number two, you forgive them. Number three, this is a hard one, don't avoid them. Look at Romans 12, 18. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live in peace with everyone. They may not want to see you. They may stay away from you. You can't control that. But as far as it depends on you, be at peace with them. And if possible, See if uh, the relationship can be salvaged or healed. Now, let's be real here. Sometimes it can't. Sometimes the situation is it's not safe for you to be around them. Sometimes the situation is such that you can no longer trust them. Every situation is different. Let's not be naive. But if possible, see if there's any hope to reestablish the relationship 
And if there is any hope at all, don't avoid them. You know, many times we're very quick to say, I've forgiven them, but I want nothing ever to do with them again. And sometimes what we really mean by this is I'm punishing them by withdrawing my friendship. I've forgiven them, I'm not retaliating, but I want nothing to do with them. What is that? Sometimes it's appropriate, but sometimes it's your way of punishing them and retaliating, which means you really haven't forgiven them. If they want to restore the relationship, see if it's possible. So number one, pray for them. Number two, forgive them. Number three, don't avoid them. Number four, will their good. What does this mean in Romans 12, 20? If your enemy's hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. What does that mean? It means that in every way you possibly can, you seek to will their good. And you do what you can for their good. Again, it doesn't mean you have to trust somebody if they've proven not to be trustworthy. Let's say, for example, you have a friend who's an alcoholic or, or drug addict, and you're trying to help them. Do you have to trust them? No. Because if you know anything about addiction, of course you don't trust them. Because you know how easy it is for them to lie and, and, and lapse back into their habit. And therefore, if you really love them, and want to help them, and not just enable them, you probably won't trust them. Your lack of trust is actually your way of helping them. <coughs> because allowing them to lie to you, and take advantage of you, is not really helping them, is it? But in other contexts, depending on the situation, your lack of trust could possibly just be your way of hurting them back. So there's no one size fits all here. Because if out of retaliation and unforgiveness, you refuse to give them a second chance. <coughs> you refuse to let them change. You forever lock them up in a little mental prison in your mind and throw away the key. <coughs> That's not Messiah-like love. And patience, and long-suffering, and forbearance, and mercy. So you ask, do I have a trusty one who's hurt me? The answer is it depends on the situation. But often, sadly, the answer is no. But here's why. Because you want to see them grow. Because you don't want to make it easy for them to keep on sinning. And that brings us to the fifth practical point, to grow in patience. So number one is to pray for them. Number two, forgive them. Number three, don't avoid them. Number four, will their good. Number five, oppose them humbly. Opposing them humbly. This is not a curveball. Uh, but this is Yeshua faith. And it's amazing. Look again at our verse, Romans 12, 20. It says, this is the hard one. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Well, that's a sweet little image, isn't it? <laughs> what the heck does that mean? <laughs> Commentators have debated this for millennia. <laughs> well, this here's what I think it means. I think it's a, it's a poor word picture. If you're back in the ancient Middle East in a besieged city with an invading army trying to storm your city gates, and you're up on the wall defending your city, how do you do this? Well, one of the best ways to defend your city is to pour burning oil or some flaming liquid down on the heads of the attackers. And I don't know, but I'm told that it's kind of hard if your hair's on fire to use your sword. <laughs> it's difficult to aim your bow and arrow when your hair's on fire. <laughs> so when you're pouring burning coals on their head, what are you doing? You're stopping them from attacking you. So look at the paradox. If the person's wronging you, yes, you do stop them. You do oppose them. Yes, you stop the attack. But now look at the context. If your enemy's hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, you give him drink. There's a mixture here of opposition and yet love. You're opposing them for their own good. You're opposing them because it's their meat and their drink. Look at Romans 12, 16. Live, live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position, 
Don't think you're such hot stuff. Don't think you're superior. Proverbs 15.1 says this. A soft answer turns away wrath. But a harsh answer just stirs up anger. A soft answer means being gentle and gracious. But then it also says something else about soft answers. Look over at Proverbs 25.15. Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded. A gentle word can break a bone. What's it saying? Do you want to persuade people? Do you want to change people? If a person is sinning, if they're wronging you, you've got to oppose them. Why? Because the most unloving thing you can do is let the person go on sinning. That's very unloving. So so you're trying to oppose them, you're trying to stop them, but you do it softly. You do it graciously. You do it humbly. You You do it in such a way that you clearly are showing them that you're trying to give them meat and drink. Which means here's how you know if you're doing it right. If you go to somebody who's wronged you, and you tell them what they've done that's wrong, but you do it in such a way the person sits there and says, I don't necessarily like what you're saying. I may not even agree with it, but it's clear to me that you really care for me. If you can do that, there's then at least a 50-50 chance that the person will actually hear you and might actually change. But if you just go in and confront them and oppose them and fight fire with fire with this attitude, I'm seeking the truth, I'm seeking justice, it's very clear to the other person that you like the confrontation. You're enjoying it. Uh, You're putting them down, you're punishing them, and you're not really just doing it for truth's sake uh, or for God's sake. You're doing it really for your sake. uh, To vindicate yourself, uh, to justify yourself, You're doing it for your ego's sake. You're doing it with an air of superiority uh, and pride and self-righteousness. Not out of humility uh, and brokenness and love. And you're certainly not doing it for their sake, uh, to restore them and to reconcile with them. And if that's your attitude, they will never hear you, and they'll never receive what you're saying, and they'll never repent or change. They will just dig in their heels. Because they will know that you don't really have their best interests in mind. Because you're doing it just to protect your own turf. Therefore, if you oppose, if you go in and oppose without first forgiving and blessing and praying and loving and being humble, if you oppose them without doing all the other things first, you will never see evil defeated. You will never get that person to see the error of his or her ways. I know a lot of people who are proud that they can use harsh language uh, and be abrasive and be assertive and forthright and confrontational. I've got footstool, right? Uh, And as a result, because their words are not gentle and soft, no one is ever persuaded. No one ever changes. And they, by the way, they feel that's fine. They're self-satisfied, and they're proud in their own eyes. Why? Because I've been valiant for the truth. Which means they really don't care about the truth. Because if they really cared about the truth, they would say it in such a way that people could actually receive it and be persuaded by it. Instead, it's all about them and their ego. They like the fact that, that they offend people. They like that that people are upset with them. Because that makes them feel very noble uh, and vindicated uh, and righteous. They pat themselves on the back. But let me tell you, that is evil. There's nothing noble. There's nothing Messiah-like about it. That's just self-righteousness. That's just repaying evil with evil. The very thing Paul condemns here in verse 17. Look again, Romans 12, 17. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of all. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, be at shalom with all men. So if you have any chance of being effective, and reaching someone and correcting them, 
you need to first forgive them and bless them and pray for them before you even try to approach them with what they've done wrong. Because they can sense your heart and your spirit a mile away. They can sense your attitude. And so when you want to talk to them about their fault, you need to do it humbly. But here's the balance. You have to actually do it as well. You can't just avoid it and ignore it. You can't make it easy for people to sin against you. Uh, that's the worst thing for them. And this proper balance, it's hard. Most people either resentfully confront, or they excuse and keep silent and just refuse or are too scared to make any waves. So you don't want to be passively enabling and keeping your mouth shut. That's not real love. And you, don't, you also don't want the other extreme of, of resenting and just blasting them and returning evil to evil. But rather, we're to humbly confront and speak the truth in love, which very few of us, the broadest, actually do. Which brings us to our, our last point, our third point. So number one is the principle of patience or long-suffering. Number two is these practical ways, these five practical ways of how to do it. And number three, now how do you get the power to actually do this? To actually practice this? Where do you get the power for this? And then at first sight, uh, you might think that you get this power from being strictly exhorted about this, right? Look at verse 19. It says, Don't take revenge, my friends. Leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, saith the Lord. The Lord says, Don't take revenge. What's God saying? God is saying this. Get out of my chair. Only I have the right and the ability to sit in the judgment seat. Indeed, Paul says, leave room for God's wrath. God said, you, you don't really know what this person deserves. You don't know. You're sitting there and imagining all sorts of things about them. Imagining all sorts of things you think should happen to them. But you don't know. So, for example, somebody lies to you. You get really mad at them. What do you say? Liar! You're a liar. That's all you are. Well, let me ask you something. Do you ever lie? Yes. But when you lie, why, why do you lie? Well, it's complicated. But when someone wrongs you, they're just a one-dimensional, cardboard cutout, cartoon character. They're just a liar. When you lie, well, it's very complicated. There's all sorts of extenuating circumstances. Uh, there's this, and there's that, and my mother didn't love me, and <laughs> all kinds of reasons. <laughs> but guess what? The reality is somewhere in the middle. When you're mad at someone, God looks at you, and I think this is what God says. He says, you don't know what that person has gone through, do you? You don't know their background. You don't know what kind of day they've had. You don't know what their relationship with their mother was like. <laughs> you don't know these things. Therefore, God says, only I know what they deserve. So get out of my chair. Now, all this is true. I'm going to submit to you. It does not actually give you the power to change and to live that way. That's the exhortation, and hopefully it humbles you. So say, yeah, I've got to get out of his chair. But I don't think it gives you the power from within to actually do this. But here is where you do get the power to overcome evil with good. This is patience and grace in the face of opposition. It comes from seeing the mercies of God. In fact, chapter 12 begins this way. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore I beseech you, brethren, in view of the mercies of God. In view of the mercies of God. And then he gives all these exhortations throughout the whole rest of chapter 12. The entire rest of the chapter are actually expectations of how to live this way. And therefore, everything Paul says here about patience and long-suffering and forgiveness, not returning evil for evil, but uh, blessing your enemy, overcoming evil with good, all of this can only be done in the view of the mercies of God. Now, Paul could have said because of the mercies of God, but instead he uses this word view. Oh, what's a view? A view... It's a breathtaking experience. Uh, it's a panorama. 
Here's what Paul is saying. It's on the overhead. If you want to overcome evil with good, you have to have a panoramic, breathtaking view of God's mercy to you. Interesting. And when Yeshua talks about God's forgiveness and mercy, when he talks about God's forgiveness, mercy is actually the very heart of how God helps you to forgive. And Yeshua connects these two, mercy and forgiveness, in the famous parable of the unmerciful servant of Matthew 18. So look at Matthew 18 and 23. Yeshua says, The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, it's like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. He began his settlement, uh, as he began his settlement, the man who owed him 10,000 talents of gold was brought before him. Now at this point, all the commentators freak out uh, at this number, because it's, it's actually in our dollars today means billions, if not trillions of dollars. And therefore, this was not a loan. No king could have possibly given any servant 10,000 talents of gold. It must be that this servant was some high official in the kingdom, and through mismanagement and probably malfeasance, he's lost this enormous sum of money. So much so, the very economy and the very kingdom was now in jeopardy. Sounds very up to date, doesn't it? Sounds kind of like maybe modern-day Venezuela. <laughs> or 2008 U.S. banking crisis. <laughs> Matthew, 28, uh, Matthew 18, verse 25. Since the servant's, of course, not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and everything he had be sold to repay the debt. And the servant, what does he do? He falls on his knees and he says, Be patient with me, I keep begging. I'll pay you back everything. And the king, who has every right to sit in judgment, forgives him. Has mercy on him. Next, next verse, verse 27. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But then what happens next? Look at verse uh, 28. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who ordered about 100 denarii, it's like 100 bucks. He grabbed him, he begins to choke him, pay me back everything you owe me. His fellow servant falls to his knees and begs, be patient with me, I'll pay you back. Which, by the way, is the exact same word the first servant had said to the king. But he refused. Instead, he went off and the man thrown into prison until he could pay back the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. They went and told their master everything had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you? And in his anger, the king handed him over to the jailers to be tortured, until he should pay back all that he owed. So the king says to his ungrateful servant, Don't you see my mercy? Didn't you see my mercy? Didn't you view my mercy? Didn't you experience my mercy? How can anyone who's experienced my mercy still hold a grudge and still hold his, his fellow servant liable, especially for such an infinitely smaller amount of a debt? So the king throws the first servant into prison. And then Yeshua ends the parable with this chilling statement, verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless... Forgive your brother and your sister from your heart. You know what this really means? The only way you can be spiritually lost is if you refuse to believe that you are a sinner who needs to be saved by grace. The only way you can be spiritually lost, according to the Bible, is through pride. It's to say, I don't need your charity, Yeshua. <clears throat> can only be lost or refuse to believe that you are a sinner who can only be saved by grace. So what Yeshua is saying here, if you hold a grudge, if you retaliate, but even though you say, yes, I'm a sinner saved by grace, you really don't believe it. Because by your actions, you're denying it. And your actions speak louder than words. So you don't really believe you're a sinner saved by grace. Oh, no matter what you may say you believe. And this parable 
is a picture of us. Here you have a servant pretending and acting like he's the king and he's the judge. He says to his fellow servant, I won't forgive you. I won't even postpone your debt. No mercy. Into prison with you. This servant here is acting as if he's the king or he's the judge. But that's you. And that's me. That's why we're always angry with each other. That's why we're always paying us for the back, evil for evil. That's why we're sitting in judgment against each other. We're servants acting as if we're kings and judges. What will change our hearts? Overhead, please. The only thing that will change a servant from acting like a king is to get a view of the amazing love of a king who became a servant. We should be in the dock. That's the dock where the defendant sits in the court of law. Instead, we put ourselves up on the bench, on the judgment seat. No, we're where the judge sits. But the Lord, the Lord who's rightfully in the judgment seat, he came down. He put himself in the dock. He went to the cross. He went to the execution stake. The judge of all the earth was judged. He was judged for you and for me. He took the punishment that we deserve for our sins, for all the ways we harm each other. And seeing this and embracing this will give you what you need to forgive. The gospel, if you believe it, if you trust it, if you surrender to it, if you actually commit your life to it, will transform you. It'll make you a new creation in the Messiah, Yeshua. And it'll give you the power to live for him and to forgive others and love them. If you see his mercy, it humbles you. You can't stay angry at someone unless you feel superior to them. So the gospel of God's mercy humbles you out of your bitterness. By the way, it also affirms you out of your bitterness as well. Because you don't have to, to, to justify yourself anymore. Because you've been justified in Messiah, Yeshua. You don't have to try to justify yourself. You don't have to justify yourself to me or to anybody else. You don't have to worry about your reputation. Yeshua says, come to me. I don't care what you've done. So I read a testimony today with Corona Elizabeth. I don't care what you've done, Yeshua says. And that's what enables you to forgive others. Now, yes, you need to tell them the truth. And sometimes you need to exercise tough love and be strong. But when Yeshua was dying on the cross because he was being unjustly executed, he says this in Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And if he could forgive you and me, because our sins nailed him to that cross, then you can forgive the far lesser sins that others have committed against you. And if you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him, then the Spirit of Messiah will dwell within you and will empower you to walk in his ways and to forgive those who've wronged you and spitefully used you and betrayed you and turned against you. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do you see the balance here? First he says, Father, they don't know what they're doing. What they're doing is wrong. They need to be forgiven. They're guilty. I'm dying for them. But look how he acts. You see what he said? Instead of yelling at them and cursing them and his executioners, what does he say? He says, Father, they don't really understand what they're doing. Yeshua has something good to say, even about his executioners. Look at this incredible balance. He treats even his executioners, if he can treat even his executioners like that, how dare you and I be cold and vengeful and withdrawing to those who wrong us? How dare we be sarcastic and biting and disrespectful and clawing and slashing and burning to other people? How dare we talk and act like that? Yeshua wouldn't even talk like that to people unjustly murdering him. 
So we need the grace and the patience that will grow only out of that great view of what Yeshua has done for us. His saving mercy for you. See the cross. <laughs> Let it transform <coughs> today. Amen. Let's stand and pray. The music teacher, please come up. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, Father, me coming for you right now, I want to thank you. Thank you that Yeshua, the judge of all the earth, left his throne, became a servant, a suffering servant for me, for us, on our behalf. Let us ever behold him and behold his mercies to us. And in the light of his mercy, help us, your servants, Yeshua's servants, not to usurp your role as the judge. Help us to get out of your chair. Help us not to seek revenge on those who wrong us, but to leave room for your wrath. You're the judge, not us, Lord. Vengeance is yours. You will repent. Lord, help us not to return evil for evil, but to overcome evil with good. Help us not to seek a tit-for-tat retaliation like the world does when somebody wrongs us. But, Lord, help us to respond like Yeshua does. To love even our enemies. To give them meat and drink. Your kingdom is not like the world's kingdom. So, Lord, when we're wrong, help us to respond by praying for our persecutors. Blessing them. Forgiving them. Seeking their good. Not avoiding them. Oh, willing for their, their, their blessing. Not secretly obsessing over, remembering the evil over and over again in our minds and secretly rooting against them. And then let us also, Lord, be able to, to lovingly confront and oppose them uh, when necessary so we're not, we're not enabling their sin, Lord. Help us, Lord, help us to do it uh, in such a way that they see our humility and our long-suffering and our patience and mercy and love uh, and, and goodwill for them so that it will pierce their heart and actually change them. We pray this all in your name.